Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone who has a morbid fascination in how the story sausage is made. On this show, our manifesto has three central prongs. One, to make you write more. Two, to make you write better. And three, to make you happier as you do so. Because your happiness is important to me and my happiness is important to me. And we should never lose sight of why we do this, which is to increase the sum total of human happiness and knowledge. I hope you are super, super well. Today, we have got a wondrous guest. I think this is probably one of my favourite chats I've ever done on the show. Um, I'm speaking to Dr. Alexander Cummins, who is a historian and a poet and a kind of magical consultant. His background, is he got his doctoral thesis um in the history of magical approaches to the emotions and his special areas are like focus folk magic and necromancy and divination he practices geomancy he you know writes so he has a background in having to come up with creative work but what we talked about is look it wouldn't it be great if we could uh, magic the uh, novel that we're working on into existence well we chat about that a little bit today. We talk about some of the history of magic. We, you know, great stuff about why there are no departments of magic in universities, why insurance companies got rid of cunning folk in towns and villages. Really, really interesting. He's such a knowledgeable erudite guy with interests in philosophy and how we conceive of truth and you know the scientific method and uh, folklore and different cultural uh, attitudes to reality and truth and also what creativity is and how you know it's just really interesting and a big can of worms that we um that we uh, get a tin opener out and uh, um, pour out everywhere and uh, and have a lovely time rifling through. So specifically, what this episode I think will be do for you is one: we talk a bit about sort of using methods from different forms of divination to generate ideas, to come up with stories or inspiration. Because I guess you know, as we both people who've played a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons, which is essentially a divination system, right? You play this game where you roll dice and consult charts and books to create a story. And there's this extra player at the table, this force of randomness or chance or fate or whatever you think it is. So essentially, we're looking at ways and I'll talk through some ways that we might apply some of those things to our own writing, ways of knocking you out of the rut that you're in, ways of getting you acting in new ways that you wouldn't normally, which is, you know, half the battle when it comes to creativity. Uh, perhaps some, the other thing we talk about is some little rituals that you might do, some little ways of setting your mind in a place where it's easier to write or more conducive to writing, some ways that you can set yourself, I guess, new routines. Because often we're following routines that we don't consciously realise, that we didn't consciously choose. And this is just going to give you some alternatives. Now, I should say, 
what we're talking about, and and actually a lot of the history stuff and talking about magic will be really really interesting to uh, writers of fantasy and and to anyone who's interested in history. But I do think we, you know, but then we plumb directly into creativity and some uh, historical folk magic and uh, magic from different cultures uh, approaches to creativity. Um, some of which you can have fun with trying out. I should say, like, the talk is sort of largely agnostic on whether you're a rationalist or uh, whatever you sort of believe. Um, a lot of these methods are not actually reliant on that. And there are, you know, mechanisms in them that are simply to do with, like I say, knocking you out of your normal way of doing things, disrupting your normal patterns, creating connections between things of changing the noise signal to noise ratio of how you look at the world they're, they're more like ways of looking at the world that might open up some possibilities okay so if you're thinking well tim you know I, i'm a, a strict kind of like materialist rationalist i don't believe in magic that's absolutely fine i, I, I that isn't what this is about it's about kind of the history of it and it as a folk practice and a cultural practice you know like kind of like any art like a poem or like music um but i don't don't want to talk much more because i'd just like you to hear al himself i will put links in the show notes to his website where you can go he does like uh online workshops where you can learn about the you know, things like the history of necromancy and all sorts of different parts of uh magic he also does like classes and he also does consultations if you're interested in getting a bit of uh, geomancy and having a different sort of take on what your uh on what uh on whatever your situation is you can do that so i'll include that um i hope you just enjoyed today's episode because i certainly did um he's just a really really interesting teacher so um i'm not gonna go on any longer i hope you're well and thank you for tuning in and if you enjoyed today's episode, please share it. And please, you know, subscribe to us on uh, whatever podcatching app you are on. That really helps us. And it helps me get new guests to uh, have lots of subscribers. Okay, take care. Here's me chatting to Dr. Alexander Cummins. I guess my first question is, I don't know why I'm he hedging with I guess, because this is my first question. I suppose if it fails as a first question, I will come up with another first question. But for me, the question that I want to ask first is, is when do you first... What's your first memory of, like, magic being a presence in your life? Mm. It's a good question. Uh, gosh. I mean, okay, you know, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the easy answer is uh, I am, a, you know, a living chick tract come to life in terms of I was playing, you know, Dungeons and Dragons with my dad and his friends when I was four or five. Uh, and so the, the, I guess the most immediate um, sort of answer to that. Wait, hang is, on. Wait, 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 wait. F sorry. Four or five? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I, I, I'm I, excited I, by this. I want I'm, to know this, right, because my daughter's <laughs> two and a half now, right. and I'm counting down the days. I don't want to alienate her. 
by like going, hey, you've got to play this, but I would like to open the world of <laughs> roleplay to you. So you, that that young, you were playing D and D. Yeah, I mean, it was. I think I was essentially, uh, you know, mostly playing a kind of uh, NPC. I think most of the difficult decisions of the dwarf fighter I was playing were probably a uh, a kind of uh, uh, collaborative uh, care in the community dungeon delving style uh, between my dad and the other uh, players. But uh, yeah, were the other certainly... players were the other players adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was my dad and his friends. And, oh my and, gosh! And I was I was around and I I was at the table and I, I distinctly remember you know holding dice that seemed far bigger then than they do now and uh you know so i would I'd roll dice and i would uh feel like i was participating with the big boys uh, but i mean but you were but i mean but you fundamentally were right that's um yeah. and you're playing a dwarf fighter because i i like i also feel that like if there was a class that not to impugn dwarves but <laughs> if there was a, a kind of gimli style class that i would want to be played by a kind of a five-year-old who maybe doesn't understand the import of all the decisions he's going to maybe rushes in a bit too fast. Maybe that's great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Amazing. What an amazing form of play to be. So what, how amazing of your dad to involve you in that. So, so young. And that's, and that's like why I will bat hard uh, when, you know, you're at occultists, conferences or you know uh trying to hang out with the cool necromancers and they're rolling their eyes about D and like the notion of collaborative play and of imaginative collaborative storytelling and teamwork are really crucial things uh, you know spe- you know to, from from ritual to how we how we argue to how we decide to make truth claims and how we work together as as teams of of, of any sort i think they're they're fundamentally really useful skills. I mean, obviously, I, I suspect I'm, I'm preaching to a choir here to some degree, but uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll bat hard for for D and D as a as an in to to magic. Can I just jump into something before you kind of you said the phrase there? Maybe if it's too much of a kind of can of worms, we can come back to it later. But you said how you make truth claims, and I'm really I've never heard that phrase before, and I was wondering if that's something you could define because I. The rest of it, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's something I, I don't know if I've encountered before. Sure. I mean, so being uh, an early modernist by training I'm inter- and, and, and studying magic and how fabulously interdisciplinary it is. I mean, part of the reason we don't have departments of, of magic at universities anymore is that the, the various things that they were studying, and this is a, a huge broad brushstrokes thing, got split off into lots of different departments, right? In the same way that service magicians uh who were responsible for returning lost property uh or uh safeguarding communities in various ways uh are kind of superseded by things like you know insurance companies and uh a a, a codified police force and things like that oh so you're it's... blowing my mind already i'm all i just <laughs> want to report i'm already like my mind is I'm having such a great time. Sorry, I want to get the obsequiousness out of the way because that in itself is extraordinary. Wowee. Insurance so company. Yeah, yeah. That was, the, that was the main thing that like cunning folk did. Uh, village wizards, wise women, um, people that were practicing a variety of, of, of folk magics and occasionally some like some pretty ceremonial forms of magic as well. They were using, you know, a variety of kinds of magic books and things like that. And the main things they would do is find lost property, uh, you know, uh, locate thieves or 
occasionally they'd work uh, a variety of like um, love divination, you know, who you're going to who you're going to marry or even um, there was a there was a line in what they called um, marriage leashes as well to stop a, a wandering husband from uh, adultering all over the place. Uh, so they were, you know, these, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in these magicians who are actually doing things for their communities, not just kind of like delving into the, the secret workings of the universe. Uh, but often these things are, are separated as like here are the academic lot over there doing their arcane Latin and here are the 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 itinerant illiterates um you know dirt wizards um you know uh duping the 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 locals and the reality is uh obviously a lot more complicated but that these kinds of practitioners uh, might not have been talking to each other but they were certainly drawing on similar kinds of materials i'm interested in the idea of the the you know the epistemology of of how we make truth claims partly because a lot of the the ideas of where the scientific revolution, as it gets called, draws its its conceptions of inductive logic, experimental methodology, uh, those kinds of things. All these pieces are are already there. You know, like the history of the printing press, right? The idea that like actually a lot of the particular parts of it had been around for a very long time, and it was only bringing it together at that time that produced this um, this this particular thing that ended up obviously sort of revolutionising uh, literacy and and and. and intellectual reception and transmission of, of, of ideas and, and material. So I'm interested in where uh, magic stops being a, a useful framework for a, a kind of materialist overculture, if we like, uh, because there's, again, um, there's a, uh, and stop me if I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, uh, Patrick Curry, uh, a historian of astrology and, and the environment, uh, has uh done some work pulling apart where the shift to a uh, a rational <laughs> uh heavy inverted quotes there a uh, materialist view overtakes uh what we can generally call an, an occult view of of how we can decide what's true and useful and he puts it down to the spread of astrological literature and know-how during the 17th century that as elites are no longer able to rely on complicated star law, because there is a, an explosion of printing between uh, a couple periods, but but the the one I've looked at most is the period between 1640 and 1660, when owing to some you know civil war business, the printing press restrictions that previously meant that if you needed something publishing or you wanted something publishing, you had to get either the king's court approval or maybe a bishop. Or, or someone high up, and those are those go completely out the window uh, in that 20-year period. And so there's this explosion of printing, and one of the main things that gets printed, it gets called the democratization of magic. One of the, the main things that gets printed is is almanacs. A lot of the the French and other continental commentators of the early modern period are coming over to the British Isles and saying these these English, they're I mean it's great they're learning to read, but they're learning to read from almanacs and star law, and they're they're hardly reading the Bible at all. This is terrible. Uh, which, which you know, legitimately so. The Bible's a, a fascinating read as well, especially the you know psychedelic dessert of Revelation at the end. <laughs> uh, but the 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 idea that that Curry and other um, uh, historians of this ilk have put forward is that the move to uh, a scientific set of explanations, a materialist scientific uh, set of explanations, and that that this is the the best form of truth making. It is kind of more about moving the goalposts once everyone is astrologically literate 
to something that requires expensive lab equipment and probably a Royal Society membership. So the idea that like these are more, you know, we're, we're, we're able to produce experiments. And by the way, experiment is, is the usual term for a spell in most uh, medieval and early modern handbooks of magic. Uh, the experimentum, all right, uh, that are, yes, they're replicable. Uh, people start, you know, dying less, you know, medicine improves. Absolutely, the technology is, is, is useful. But the, the, the reason that the, uh, the, the epistemological, uh, what do we want to call it? Like, um, uh, not, not just gestalt, but like the, uh, the idea of like who gets to say what about things and whether or not the stars or listening to spirits is a useful way of gaining information or not, uh, is more a political one and more a, a socioeconomic one as well, as elite classes decide to use a different set of criteria for investigating the world. And a, a set of criteria that have, have produced you know, fascinating, useful things. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing that we'd be better off um, not knowing how you know, measles works or or, or vaccines or, um, you know, uh, various other things of the modern world. But it wasn't just a matter of everyone suddenly being like, well, this is a more accurate uh, ontology. Let's all adopt that then without any disagreement at all. So, so, this, so uh, am I right in saying, sorry, that you're that you're you're suggesting just to make sure I've understood this, that the, the, the one factor and very as a non-trivial factor in this shift of the zeitgeist is that there's a kind of move towards a kind of aristocracy of reason yeah. that like the, or, or well and again heavy inverted commas around reason but that this that what happens is people it's seen as it, 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 it it's what can it's something that can there's there's no there's no mileage there's no social mileage in being able to sort of make predictions based on the stars because um any well anyone put, who puts the time in has access to those tools so yeah. so so although there may be uh, great strides that are made in for may have made great strides because of reason the the motives behind making that switch are not because i am just naturally drawn towards truth but because right. i can create a system of uh where i can con we can actually control the supply of this yes yeah i think so i think so that's that's fascinating now what i was going to ask was how because you said that it relates back to dungeons and dragons i was just wondering how in that kind of role-playing scenario that what 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 the connection between those two things is well i think you're into a realm of uh experiential stuff uh the technical term there i think you're <laughs> talking about qualitative and quantitative uh claims and and dnd &D is a constant um dance between what the numbers and the tables say and what that means right that our uh, our qualitative uh, experience of the game and of what we um what we collaborate on on how a thing happens is the is the role right and the the actual hard dice of no you you know you missed you you didn't you didn't roll thaco <laughs> hmm. uh are uh are the roll right and both are necessary and so the idea of being able to not just simply reject 
the idea that there's there's any such thing as as useful repeatable claims you know despite Hume's uh, you know uh, undermining of the uh, of, of inductive logic that uh, the, both these things are generally necessary and that's also where you see the you know the spectrum of of, um, of RPGs right you've got your your far more you know points based measurement uh quantitative stuff with um gosh do people still play gurps uh, yes yes and, they do and, yes absolutely right and then you've got the other side of like i'm more familiar with like the you know the storyteller game systems or even the ones that are like hardly using any dice uh, and it's you know it's either um completely kind of mm, improvisatory or you know collaborative or there might be like a bare minimum of a rule framework that's it's it's mostly all rule of cool kind of thing or, or I, rule of flavor or, or, or genre and i'd say even some of the apparent i mean uh, uh john peterson i think it was wrote a really fascinating history of wargaming called uh playing at the world and yeah. he talks about you know how they start off with kind of like training for kind of na- in napoleonic kind of era generals and things like that mm. training them how to play war games and they draw up these big tables of when you have this many troops versus this many troops you know what's going to happen and uh based on you know previous you know they and these are drawn up by actual military strategists and people who have experience in the field based on actually what has happened in battles and mm-hmm. there's all sorts of dice rolls and things like that <laughs> and then you always have like a referee in these big games and actually what started to happen is people would, the referees would, you know, people would consult them and go, who wins in this thing and this thing? And actually, a lot of the referees just started not using these systems at all and mm. making a judgment. And so there was mm. based on, well, that wouldn't happen, or no, I think this would happen. And even in this system where there were is like allegedly or supposedly this kind of great edifice of mathematics and data Mm -hmm. um what's actually happening is people are going with hunches and intuition and the whole the whole thing is kind of a a fiction and i don't mean that I, i don't mean that pejoratively i just mean it in the kind of way that immediately in the history of role playing games the dungeon master starts fudging dice rolls behind the screen right what it's it's about producing narrative meaning as well as like a technical you know paper trail of of uh of you know cause and effect i want because i think this is i think this is fascinating and i love this idea of this strange thing that happens when we you know like you say dungeons and dragons has the this the not unnecessarily immediately obvious uh, lineage of ritual and storytelling and casting of di- you know casting of things that are supposedly random but that we invest meaning into if, if you play Dungeons and Dragons and you just think of the dice that you roll as being plastic uh, dodecahedrons or whatever it it does lose something there's 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 almost a kind of agreement or mutual consent that has to go into the fiction that something more important is happening there i was wondering if you could maybe talk speak to because i i know we're going to you know get into kind of creativity and things that writers can can use or borrow from i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the 
history or some of the traditions of um, casting or, you know, using something that create, generates randomness or chance, whether those are the entities that are actually being evoked, um, that might come before that, ways that people have done that, you know, whether whether it be dice or whatever. I wonder if you could speak to that at all. Sure. So there's um, there's a couple forms. There are God, we could get into all sorts of taxonomies of, of, of divination. Uh, so mm, a big split, a major split is computational versus what gets called non-computational sometimes. So it's the difference between, uh, gosh, let's let's think about this. Um, even a computational form, the data can't be questioned, right? It would be the throw of some dice. And then you would put that through. So there are many divination systems that involve, say, three dice and you would roll them. And depending on not just the added result, but like, you know, two fours and a three is a particular thing. You know, uh, a two or four and a six is a particular thing. And so that's computational in the sense that when you roll it, you refer to a table, basically. Or you so is that is, is does the sort of I Ching and casting like Yarrow Storks yeah. come under that then? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that would be that would be a great example of that. Then there's uh, non-computational, and the strictest non-computational divinations are various forms of trance, uh, and we're into whole other realms of like scrying and things like that, zoning out or inflaming oneself with prayer or entering, you know, the, the very problematic term altered states of consciousness and receiving information uh, without that that it, it would be very difficult to measure in any again uh, quantitative way, right? Staring into the fire. Uh, until you hear a voice or, or see something uh, into a you know a pool of water or or the static of a television. So they're or, large. They're largely kind of more in intuitive uh, forms. Yeah, they're they're, re they're receptive. Yeah, uh, the idea of a lot of um, angel conjuration in the medieval and, and early modern period was that the angel wouldn't necessarily physically turn up, uh, and, and certainly wouldn't necessarily be. Um, mm, wouldn't wouldn't the visual confirmation of it wouldn't be you know the the blazing glory of the archangel michael splitting your ceiling and coming down and having this like terribly psychedelic vision it was far more often uh utilized as a, a direct transmission of information so it's a way of understanding um what we yeah what we might call intuition or when we we you know we suddenly know something uh a way of explaining Pru like proustian memory is 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 almost entirely explained in a variety of cultures as as already spirit contact right that that's not necessarily you know you hear a voice saying open the pot and release me and my evil into the world it's 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 a lot more like flashes of um imagery the the depictions in fiction where a spirit is rifling through someone's memories and using those to construct a new story is is a lot more like the 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 traditions of uh, mediumship and spirit contact that I've come across in a, in a variety of magical traditions. Well, that, that's uh, so one, one of the things that I really enjoy, um, not not to trivialise what you're talking about, but I really enjoy about the board game um, Mysterium. I don't know if you've ever played it. No, but, I haven't. Um, Tell me more. It's basically Cluedo, except uh -huh. that the, the murder victim um, uh -huh. is alive as a spirit and uh -huh. the players are all mediums. And what you have is a, as the spirit, behind a kind of dm screen you know who who the murderer was you know who uh -huh. did it um but you ha all you have is a deck of cards with abstract or surreal images on and oh, each turn you get to you draw a hand of them 
and yeah. you give different players one or two or however many cards you like to try and lead them towards guessing a certain uh, character or a certain location or a certain murder weapon. But the thing pictures will be, say, a a mouse on a unicycle going over a, 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 a city <laughs> with large chimney stacks or a chessboard with right. a, a a sort of gooseberry in the corner and right. they and so you're constantly looking for ways that you can what i would say about that game that's fascinating is me and my wife um could i was able to as the ghost lead her with the most abstract images and then she would go look these three pictures mm -hmm. all have red in the background this person mm -hmm. has red on his tie she it was kind of odd i would say like she oh, we yeah. were able to read each other's intuit what the message was out of potentially thousands of interpretations really quickly yeah yeah and 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 um you know there's there's uh there's a lot of stuff i did my uh doctorate in uh, uh magical approaches to the passions to the emotions in, in in early modern britain primarily but there's some european stuff there as well there is a bunch of material about how love uh, makes you more psychic uh, for what for, you know for one of a, a better term that um that you have a sympathia right uh and that you 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 know you understand how the other thinks is one way of putting it but that you are more valent to the kinds of ways that they are attempting to communicate in in a variety of ways i've got to say there's plenty of um tentative but um suggestive neuro neuroscience coming out that suggests um couples in long-term relationships that their brains uh divide split the work of certain uh cognitive operations um split the cognitive load between them such that they will share they will split kind of like who remembers certain things and who remembers other things and split the <laughs> memories between them so i think you know there's to a certain and hence you get you know couples who remember an anecdote an experience that happened to the other and retell it as an anecdote as if it happened to them completely convinced that they were the one yeah. who experienced it yeah 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 uh they finish each other's synchronicities <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk a little bit more about how some of the ways that some of those um, computational systems, I think you called them, um, yeah. might work? A couple of like examples, because I think these are—it's you know—it's really fascinating uh, sure. to me. Sure. So you mentioned the Yi Ching, the the Book of Changes. Um, that's that's certainly one um, for those unfamiliar with it. Uh, there's a variety of ways that you generate uh, an order and even number. Uh, six and you do that six times and that produces a hexagram uh, which is a you know at each of the figure the 64 figures of the the Yi Ching each of its 64 answers uh, is a uh, six broken or unbroken lines so it's a binary system and you then look up uh, or, or ideally you know <laughs> what those uh, figures are there are there are also combinations of trigrams the eight trigrams so it fits in with like Bagua and a bunch of other stuff that will eventually be called feng shui um, not just in terms of like arranging a house, but in terms of like this figure, you know, of uh, you know, uh, the thunder over the mountain is is the the trigram for thunder and the trigram for mountain, and that is one of the sixty four figures and has very specific meanings. Uh, so there's there's those kind of computational systems. I'm interested in one that is sometimes grouped as a, um, a structurally similar to the Yi Ching, uh, which is called geomancy, which was an immensely popular. 
system of divination in the Renaissance period. It's um, Arabic. It's 10th, maybe 11th century, if we're being conservative, uh, system of, of divination that works on the basis of 16 figures or answers that are four lines of uh, single or double dots. So it's another binary system. Uh, it has uh, it only has 16 figures, but the, the combination of those different figures produces different things. Um, why so, is it? May I ask why it's yeah. called ge- geomancy? Because um, sure, when yeah. when I hear that term, like if mm-hmm. I was, you know, in the unlikely scenario that I had a gun to my head and had to guess what <laughs> it was, um, I would assume that it was something to do with terrain or like I guess like ley lines or you know what fields of energy or something like that. I would right. I would assume it's that. Can you explain what's what's yeah, going yeah, on? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a couple of explanations. Uh, let me try and get them in order. So the root of it uh, as an Arabic system is there's a couple names for it, um, but Al-Ramal is one of them. Um, the and it, the the kinds of terms gets translated as the science of sand or sand cutting sometimes. Uh, what it is. Both is of which system- sound really cool, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I don't right? mean to again, I don't mean to trivialize it, but like the sand, the science of sand and sand cutting both. Yeah sound i'm like okay i'm into this the idea of it is that it kind of combines uh, a couple different forms of producing the data and then the data is put through uh, literally like odd or even numbers uh, and then the data is put through a computational thing so it kind of combines so back in the day you know 11th century arabic uh, geomancers would um, clear a space uh, with sand they would pray and they would make marks in the sand uh, in a semi-trance sort of state, with crucially trying to not count the number of marks they made, then they would uh, they they do uh, four lines of the of, of these marks, and then they would count them up. And if they were odd, they would put you know one mark. If they were even, they put two marks. Or there are systems where they they reverse that. But the idea is that you would make marks at random in the sand, uh, not counting them, and then count them up afterwards to produce an odd or an even figure. There are also systems of geomancy that quickly develop where you roll a dice or you do, or you count the number of birds going across the sky or you uh, do any number of other things that have far more of a, a, a lot form, a sortilege form, like dice or um, uh, coins uh, flipped, you know, heads or we, tails. When making, you said making lines in the sand at random... Is the suggestion in that system when it was using marks in the sand, was the suggestion that it was um, that when and you also said semi trance state? I'm wondering, is the is the idea that the uh, querent's uh, intuition is guiding them? Is some external uh, yeah. entity guiding them or is, you know, fate itself go what what right. what is what's the what's operating right there you're, you've, you've 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 hit the nub on the head there uh it's easy to talk about random um but the idea is that what are you talking to is a really important question uh, in terms of divination now the easiest answer is god right you are asking god to reveal something to you via a set of angels uh in islamic law geomancy was delivered by uh, the archangel gabriel uh Jivrael, who is, you know, uh, a messenger of various sorts. Uh, there's also plenty of law that says that Adam uh, was the first geomancer, and this was one of his many uh, gifts and knowledges awarded to him in, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, in Once we get to 
early modern Renaissance practitioners, certainly there's a wealth of ideas ranging from that you are putting yourself in a meditative state so that the spiritus mundi can work through you uh, or the anima mundi even can work through. This is the um, the belief and the practice of uh, Robert Flood, who's a, uh, an occult philosopher and, and, and geomancer operating around the start of the 17th century, uh, mainly around Europe. Uh, there are other ideas that you are calling down uh, specific spirits. Geomancy very quickly uh, starts to use the grammar of astrology uh, and applies the the sets of sympathies and antipathies between the planets and the zodiacal signs to uh, these particular configurations of um, odd or even numbers, these uh, these binary um, forms. And so uh, there is a notion that you are invoking a particular planetary angel or spirit who is to the the one of my favorite um, early modern geomancers, John Hayden, uh, believed that you would do certain rituals that mean that the spirit would move your hand for you that he, he had this sense of like so it's 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 kind of what we might look at and say is automatic drawing or automatic yeah writing. i was gonna say yeah yeah it looked it looks like that but it's um yeah it, it it's uh it's the idea of uh invoking a planetary spirit that um that moves your hand for you so the to, to i mean just briefly to return to the idea of why it's called geomancy there's a couple explanations once it hits um uh, latin and that's uh one is that um, well, there are two explanations for what, what a thing called geomancy might be. There is uh, an abstract kind of almost demonological one. There's a bunch of treatises by uh, various um, uh, church uh, academics of the high medieval period where they're kind of inventing mancies. Uh, so it fits their their, their huh. model of, of what works. So they're saying like, oh, there's people that we've read reports. We have, you know, it's a very Aristotelian scholastic take, right? We've, we've been reading these like ancient texts and authors, which are starting to filter in from, from Byzantium, etc. And, you know, we've been seeing that people would, you know, uh, scryers in, 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 in ancient Greece and stuff would like stare into a fire. That's obviously pyromancy. They would stare into water. That's obviously hygram, uh, you know, hydromancy. Uh, and one of them was, was geomancy. And that, that was, as you say, they, they came up with the word and then decided what it was it meant. And so, yeah, they decided, oh, it's probably looking at like the lie of terrain and the way that like maybe energy might flow, like the, the virtues of, of, of um, spirits might flow through that terrain or not. Um, but the other explanation that, that's used by actual geomancers uh, is that uh, it refers to worldly divination. Uh, it's it's the the idea of a sub of the sublunary realms beneath the Empyrean perfect uh, you know as heaven or God or, or or various abstracted realms of reality on the concrete ground here where we have to you know uh, eat and poop and, uh, and 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 live and die that ge the geo of that should be translated not as earth but as world that it that it is a, a divination system that deals with all worldly things uh, and so there's because you talked about the spiritus m m mundi and the anima anim animus mundi anima uh, mundi yeah anima mundi so just um i think you're like that again is like spirit of the world all the kind of soul of the world if i might yeah. guess yeah, no, is exactly. right those are, those are the two terms yeah yeah so so sometimes that's a, a very kind of passive thing it's the medium by which action at a distance and knowledge at a distance can take place uh it's not in some occult philosophers of the, of the pre-modern period, it doesn't look that distinct from the from notions of ether that we get later, mm. uh, like how things can travel across distances, uh, how how things can be entangled. We might say now, 
uh, those kinds of ideas. But it's at other points, it's more like the consciousness of a naturally uh, magical organic cosmos. And that's the root of any horary question, uh, div uh, divination based on uh, casting or gathering data at a specific time that a question is asked and then interrogating that data as uh, holding the meanings uh, that move you towards the answer to that question. So the classic horary chart is, a, is an astrological one. So you would, you know, we're, we're familiar with the idea of, of nativities, of the point of your birth being when the stars first kind of like make their impression on you or that there is a there is a, a mood or a zeitgeist to the time that you're born that you reflect in some ways or you'll have proclivities towards certain um, reflections of it. But you get it with with geomancy as well, where you're literally, you know, flipping coins or rolling dice as well. You know, you, that was one of the methods of doing it, as well as, you know, trancing out and making marks on, on paper or in or in the dirt or, on, or in sand. And so you have this this idea that you are interrogating the moment of asking the question as a way of generating its solutions, that in some way the universe is uh, narrating itself to itself. Is, is one way of looking at it, like especially if we're thinking about the movement of the of the stars and that the the seed, it's, it's kind of Hegelian, right? The seed of the the moment of the question has the the uh, the moment of the question has the seed of the of the answer of its of its undoing uh, of its resolution. Well, I guess, I guess in, in <laughs> to, to 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 kind of take it from that uh, sort of a rather kind of lofty place down to. Uh, well, sorry, that sounds like I'm being uh, back backhandedly insulting. I don't mean it like that, but um, <laughs> in the way that a lot of um, agony aunts often talk about how the person writing in often answers their own question within yeah. their letter, and mm -hmm. that sometimes actually what you do as an agony aunt is cut their letter down for space including where they suggest the answer and then you yep. repeat it back to them and, <laughs> and it appears like you've but actually the very premise of the question and the circumstances of the question contain all the seeds of its own answer absolutely and agony answering is a great example of uh you know people having concerns and questions that aren't necessarily uh will you know will this team win the world cup aren't the kinds of like ways that we think of as fortune telling but are about what decision should i make and often you know people are going to a variety of other professionals or um or counselors wanting to be given permission to do a thing right uh and, and one of the things i love about being um, a professional uh, geomancer uh is that i work with a variety of of clients and organizations and stuff and uh, but the the, the renaissance form of geomancy i kind of practice um has that built into it so when you throw a chart you can see uh if the client has already made their mind up about something you can it, it gives you guidance for how to have a bedside manner uh, about which clients you need to um be very very firm with which clients are going to like just fixate on parts of the bad news and and not pay attention to any of the good which clients are quite happy to be to be given very very blunt answers uh and which ones are going to need to like you know moan about something for a fair while sure because like the, the the like history of um divination as it features in royal courts is littered with uh difficult clients right yeah 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 especially when that client is your patron yeah right? 
Uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's some, clients there's... who are, may, I guess, maybe maybe in the slightly less, uh, more neutral way of talking about it, are clients who are um, attached to hearing one kind of outcome. Can you can you talk a little bit about I just before we get into sort of seeing this I think because we're moving towards it actually really sort of organically but I was wondering if you could talk about what precisely because we you talked about the different forms of geomancy that you talk now you're talk, touching on the the work you do I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about what's involved in the form that you're um practicing Sure yeah yeah um so I do a form based off uh, again, this explosion of, um, of texts in the 17th century um, produces a set of, uh, of translations of things that have been kicking about for a fair old while. Um, so the form I use is um, based off, you know, um, referring back to these early modern texts about, you know, whether or not someone's horse was stolen or it just got lost, uh, those kinds of things. But uh, attempting to, you know, adapt that for a a modern life uh and so you know maybe the horse is appropriate to to think about as a as a car you know those are the same kinds of uh, translation and things you can do so uh, my work itself um in terms of uh, my client work and consultations ranges from people with you know the old classics of of love money career and meaning uh as the standard things that people want to ask about people who find themselves at crossroads in their lives um, who are looking for perspective or guidance. And, you know, as, as someone with uh, a deep investment in uh, anarchist theory, I, I really try hard not to um, make decisions for people. Uh, that's absolutely not the job of a diviner as far as I'm concerned. The, the, the notion is that you are providing people with perspectives and options and forecasts. And it's, it's you know, it's arming them. Uh, to be more responsible about the decisions they choose to make, uh, not less. You know, hopefully you're not giving people an out or an excuse to abnegate their own responsibility. But I also uh, consult for, you know, artists who've just got a, a commission and want to do some like interactive like theatre piece or, a, or an installation of some kind and want to draw on some ideas of, of ritual magic or occult philosophy, um, which might require a reading uh, or it might just be, you know, a consult and, uh, and a chat and uh, making some, you know, texts available that are inspiring to them or some, you know, uh, list of, of, of spirit names that they might want to uh, think about uh, working with in a variety of ways. And so the, the actual consult itself, my sessions are usually about an hour and we uh, I have a, a variety of like ritual tools that uh, connect me up to. Um, the sets of spirits that I work with that um, are said to, to bring clarity and focus within the the oracle. And a lot of them are conducted by Skype. Uh, I do a lot like of distance reading. And so I usually get the client to generate the, the first figure, usually by flipping coins. Um, and then I set the rest of the chart. And then we go over the chart. A, a geomantic shield chart, as they're called, is has is like a, if we're familiar with the idea of a three card tarot reading, which is usually past, present, future. A, a geomantic chart is is a fifteen card spread. If we like, there are fifteen places. The first twelve are allotted to uh, the houses of the heavens. That doesn't mean that that's what's going on in the sky. We, it's just utilizing the, the the grammar of astrology to 
look at you know if um if you want if the client wants to ask about their relationship with a sibling that would be a third house matter so you check the third figure that fell in the reading and so those are the first 12 of the shield chart and the the last three are referred to as the courts they're the distilling down of all of this data which maps uh, various facets of the the situation into a, a final judgment uh, a, you know, a court with two witnesses and a judge and this gives you uh, this is kind of your wow. summary, right? And so, what 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 I love about that is that sometimes it's um, sometimes it's pretty directly dialectical that the first witness will say, "This is the kind of situation you're in at the moment. This is the way things look like they're heading towards." As the second witness, and the result of those two things is the the the, the final judge, because the the binary nature of of geomancy is that you can add one figure to another figure and it produces a third figure. So you're literally talking thesis antithesis synthesis, right? Uh, which is, you know, wow. a very interesting way of approaching, uh, you know, h- historicity uh, for the for the Hegelians and the Marxists. Right. Uh, but it's also, you know, uh, there's an alchemical process going on that you're literally saying, like, you behave like, you know, in the situation of, say, you know, how to resolve uh, an argument with with the, with your sister. Right. Y- you'll be uh, you'll be characterized by one figure in one place in the first uh, place, the first house. The, the sister will be in the third house. They'll have a figure. Then you can add those two figures together and produce a third figure, which is the, the characterization of the current interaction between the two of you. Right. So there's a wealth of ways that you can start to pull out information and what to do about something. Right. As well as just predicting this is what will happen. But what can I do about it? How can I act? Uh, what do I need to do to like calm my temper down or, you know, or uh, or, 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 or stick to my guns or, or whatever it is, like there's the strategies for remediation, which I think is a, a really crucial part of a, of a, a divinatory um, consultation. It's not just being like, well, there's the tower, sucks to be you, right? But actually, <laughs> yeah. actually being able to be like, okay, let's let's try and work out uh, how to make this work for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the the Tim the the Tim will definitely die tomorrow. Card. This is actually <laughs> often. Oh, this is often misinterpreted by Tim's. <laughs> that transformation. <laughs> um, that's and I will. By the way, um, to everyone listening, I'm going to put links in the uh, show notes so you can uh, check out al's uh website and his work and uh if you want to have like a poke around there or you know get in touch with him you can you can do that there i i was i just will ask a a very direct question and of course like i'm slightly tentative now because we're talking about divination and you know a lot of this is about the nature of questions and there must be some things about what is a good or a bad question which i would actually like to come on to in a second now we move into creativity my question to you Al, you know, in your expert position as uh, somebody with some experience of magic is, where do my ideas come from? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Gosh. Well, it depends on the nature of the idea, right? Um, uh, There are various (laughs) ideas that you're in dialogue with things. Um, You know, I, I have a lot of time for animist takes in the universe that you are interacting with the the spirits of things as well as their their material forms and that we are is there a particularly like occult take on on creativity on or on inspiration right definitely inspiration inspiration is 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 the word itself right inspire right is the breath of god right or the breath of the divine 
right? You are you are being moved by something um, to understand it on a either on a deeper level or that it is um, it is a descent into your mind as as uh, the you know as, as some Buddhist um, things would take. The, the the word for you know avatare is is descent, right? It's it's attempting to um, to turn up for you in some way. It's coming down to um, to to be in the world, uh, and that's. That's uh, far more kind of uh, there's definitely a variety of takes on what inspiration is. Uh, if we're talking about that kind of idea, if we're talking about how things fit together as an idea, like that's an, you know, where your idea of like, oh, I could put this with this. Right. The, the, com- the combinatory um, creativity. I'm really interested in this um, in, in the cut up technique and uh, of, of uh, William Burroughs and Brian Geisen. And uh, I, one of the reasons one of the, the, the little quotes that kind of sums up one of the ways that I'm interested in it in a, in a kind of broad, I'm interested in it as a specific like creative technique, but also for the, the kind of philosophical implications of it, that one notion of creativity is that it is the, uh, it is the, the recombination of parts of what we already know to assemble something that we didn't know before we started doing it. Right. Wow. So I think about the way that, uh, you know, early modern explorers, um, and colonialists um, would describe an animal they'd never encountered before, uh, and it's you know it's classic existential theory, right? Uh, you, you you only have what you have to draw on to describe what you're encountering. So you know you talk about the oh it's like a goat but it's got this huge long neck and it's massive and and it's it's spotted like a dog, right? So you build chimeras. We're already doing that constantly when we encounter. Uh, something new, right? We're, we're trying to find ways that it's like uh, things that we we already have, and so we are we are recombining what we already know to um, understand what we what we don't yet know, or that what appears. And the idea of experimental writing being experimental, not because you know uh, because you wear a beret or or, or or because you you think you're you know uh, a revolutionary of, of whatever sort, but it's because it's it's a thing to do. It's an operation to carry out that will spit out a result. Right. Uh, that's that's the, that's the root of experiment. You do something and you don't know what's going to happen. And then, you know, that's what happens at the end of it. And so the 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 aleatorics of the Dada movement of pulling words out of a hat. Right. To form a poem is uh, uh, fascinating to me in terms of like what we're doing when we do sortilage, what we're doing when we is, I think there's a direct connection back to back to divination. A uh, gosh, a, a system is meant to be mm, uh, is meant to map every possible eventuality. Uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't still stuff to do, but the the seven planets, or in in, in traditional astrology at least, uh, the seven planets are meant to and their combinations of, of of movements and and engagements and aspects through their twelve uh, signs are meant to govern every possible eventuality. Right? It's a it's a taxonomy of total of, of, of totality, and so when you are mixing up all of the different options, the lots of fate, and then dealing them out, you're, you're generating new things. And this is the basis of both the idea, you know, nothing new under the sun, and also that you're, 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 you're constantly recombining and recreating. And that's like each moment is, is not stepping in the same river twice, but it's still the same river. That's... <laughs> but maybe not the same part of the river. Yeah. yeah. I, it, what you're talking about really reminds me of... Um... Steve Aylett, who's an author I really love, he wrote a, a little book called Heart of the Original where he talks about originality and he actually talks about 
nothing new under the sun has been have, has having been re- received by people as a commandment rather than an observation. <laughs> right. um, but he has this lovely bit um, in chapter three, exotic accelerants, where he says. You can enrich the stuff of life by bringing together two words which have never, ever been introduced to one another before. Perhaps because they dwell in different contexts or in the jargon of different disciplines, they are never held in the intention at the same time. Yet when put together, their cogs mesh as if they were made for each other and a massive amount of energy is released. This lexical love story is great to be a part of. How else would they have met without you playing Cupid? (laughs) <laughs> that's beautiful and that's I, I love that take i love that introduction of the sympathy of the words once they do meet and uh because that's that's um that's eyeball kick right that's yeah in the sodium jukebox but the idea of that there's energy produced by doing that uh yeah yeah um yeah that, that your google whack um inherently doesn't just yeah, that, that, that it creates a little extra pocket of meaning in the world now so so uh, one one thing that we you know writers can do if we're feeling kind of like drab and uninspired or you know the story is kind of we don't have any ideas that that beginning sort of like energy source that kind of initial prospecting is I I guess I don't want to put words in your mouth here but I, I guess in part you talked about how angels don't kind of like blow don't generally appear by blowing open the roof and swooping down to land on your floor mm-hmm. but it's almost like an 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 angel visitation is like a quality of seeing yeah. i want uh, you that you're looking you kind of twist your perception half a half a turn and you are viewing and making connections between the world to actually see to you it's a form of receptiveness yeah 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 um, and 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 you can you can train uh, to, 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 to be better at that mediumship is something you can learn. Um, and, and it's definitely something you have to work at. Uh, so it's, it's about understanding what's the, it's that's, which is where meditation is useful in terms of being able to not in terms of, of quelling the mind, but in terms of just being aware that like, this is what my, my mind does when I'm idling, right? This is, this is just the, the stuff that it spews out. Here's the monkey brain, but being able to distinguish that from the kinds of insights that you gain in ritual and being able to tell that doesn't sound like something I would think normally. Right. And Hmm. so those ritual framings are often ways to uh, allow yourself. uh, There's plenty of of diviners and uh, and mediums that I know that talk about um, most of the training is an unlearning. I suppose actually what I would like to like jump into and probably this would um because you were actually no, you were kind of preempting exactly what I was going to ask, which is because we were talking about meditation. Right, that was it, and recognizing a thought that doesn't feel like you're you're a nor- the norm of what your mind would think. Yeah, and um, really interesting to me actually because I just spoke had Professor Richard Wiseman on the show a couple of weeks ago. Oh, amazing! And yeah, and he was in his research he did on luck. He had sort of discovered that people who reported to have some regular contemplation practice or something including meditation mm-hmm. or something that looked very much like meditation um were more lucky were more likely to literally in their tests find a 10 pound note that they left on the street mm. in front of them but also had these kind of coincidences and um mm. 
you know, were more like, but also were more like to speak to people, but their intuition was stronger. Right, right. When they meditated, they went, they, they reported having hunches that turned out to be good and acting on intuition that turned out to pan out well. Sure. Um, versus the people that they spoke to who reported making what turned out to be habitually unlucky decisions. Mm, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Yeah. <laughs> That's I wonder I wonder if we could just talk because you started to talk about practicing and I think it's really really useful sure okay so say I am I'd really like to, to to write I've you know picked away at things and I'd really like to be more creative um what are some where would you advise or what are some ways that I could start doing uh doing that what are some uh, aside from like literally putting words on the page right, what right. are some practices or things that i can start doing that are going to increase or are likely to increase my receptiveness to happy accidents that's to a, take a slightly bob ross-esque oh that's a wonderful way of putting it i really like that i might steal it um yeah all right um occult uh, strategies and practices for increasing happy accidents all right there's a couple of things one is just straight up like um, the meditation that just um, giving yourself time to giving the brain time to idle or the mind time to just like be itself and not be having to um, having to process stuff. It's going to be processing stuff anyway. Um, there's a, a teacher of meditation, a sort of magician, a uh, friend and colleague of mine who regularly uh, takes issue with his students and clients saying, oh, I tried meditating, but I'm bad at it. And his take was like, you can't be bad at meditating because even if you spent, you know, 10 minutes being like, oh, God, I just I wanted to I wanted to be enlightened. But I just kept thinking about, you know, what I'm going to have for dinner tonight or like an argument I had with 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 my girlfriend or whatever. And his take was, well, that's still meditating. You are you are observing your thoughts. Right. And and, and the idea of the, you know, the the, the satori of, of 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 complete blankness and oneness with the cosmos is is isn't the point. Uh, the point is to just like you know, do things that occupy you, like count the breath and that kind of stuff. So literally just like doing some form of meditation is really helpful. And if you are distracted by a good idea for how to progress the that chapter forward, then that's a that's a that's a welcome distraction. The other uh, set of practices, I would say, is to start using is, is, is to is to ritualize in various ways. Now, part of that can be, um, you know, uh, it can be favorites. Right. It can be put it can be working out. They can you can, you know, run yourself little ergonomic studies of what time of day do I end up producing better writing or more writing? Depends on, on what you're trying to do. If it's if it's you know a, a volume thing is slightly different to a to a quality thing is slightly different from a not feeling inspired thing. But in general, noticing when you're more productive and doing that, like working with your own proclivities. And that's where if you're gonna go, you know, that's that's that can be as simple as like you know, running a, you know, keeping a note of, of your, of the writing you're producing over a, like a fortnight or a month or a lunar cycle <laughs> and, uh, and seeing like when you are more productive and what kinds of productivity you're doing in different times, whether, you know. I think that's, I think that's eminently sensible. And I I think I've, I've for the last like year and a half had my little um, uh, guinea pig calendar up on my wall 
and I mark down days that I meditate and I mark down days that I write yeah. and I've marked down days when I sort of suffer particularly bad depression or panic attacks yeah. and a couple of different things but it's been it's been unbelievably useful like literally making between six and eight ink marks on a little square <laughs> each day has become just I, I I cannot it I'm actually staggered at how helpful it's been at for example getting me to meditate mm -hmm. when for ages I you know like so many people couldn't understand why I wasn't meditating looking back at a calendar and being able to see a correlation between oh I don't when I all this time that I was meditating daily look I'm writing daily and there's no panic attacks mm -hmm. and then when I stop oh look mm -hmm. here's some panic attacks <laughs> that's that is a very compelling in a way that doesn't feel like shaming or beating yourself up at all you just go oh i'll oh well that's easy to do right i'll just do more of that then great yeah. um so i think that's a i think it's almost so simple that it gets overlooked um especially in the hurly burly of every day and stuff right. to just go i did a i did a all night from midnight to 6am writing poetry writing workshop with a poet called mario petrucci and his and actually so little of it was um to do with like the technique the technical aspect of writing a poem and so much of it was to do with him going i want you to we're going to write some poems but i want you to notice what is happening the moment before you have an idea mm. and it was such an explode it was such a new way of thinking about it and i think you know when you're talking about it, it reminds me of that is like what was going what were you doing and what was going on that because we remember the idea so we go oh i've had this great idea for a poem or a story or whatever I, it came to me so rarely did people actually go what was i doing <laughs> what were the circumstances in which the idea came to me yeah 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 and that's it like and observing when you are um at your i would say at your best but like yeah observing when you're when you're being a good writer all by yourself Right. And that's that's about understanding yourself and your environment and your uh, proclivities and your influences. And that's where if you wanted to go, you know, uh, a little more into the um, into the ritualizing of things, that's where maybe getting uh, your natal chart read by an astrologer might be useful. They, you know, a good astrologer will be able to pull out, you know, uh, things like uh, the like the the some of the values that you might move towards or away from right uh, some of the um we think about it as personality but it's also about you know ways that you are more motivated you are upregulated and downregulated and just knowing like a little thing about about that can be very helpful that's where you know it isn't just necessarily navel gazing that you're actually thinking about uh, well, this system says that I, you know, I have a tendency to to do this kind of thing. I want to observe whether that's true or not, and and move forward from there. And crucially, I think with all of this stuff is that it doesn't. I don't think it requires a buy-in of, of of belief, which is a whole massive thing in of itself. But I, I think they can just if if you just treat them as writing prompts, uh, that that the let success be thy proof uh, is is the the phrase that um that crowley used a, a bunch for this kind of stuff and so there are there are various ways that you could start to incorporate um an understanding of of, of who you are right um using uh, various occult means of uh 
of kind of uh, assessing you and, and, and telling you what your your strengths and weaknesses are. And then there's all the stuff about ritualizing uh, inspiration, right? And and of setting up a, um, a a landing pad for these ideas to. Let's go on to that in just a, uh, a second. Sure. I just I I just want to touch on that a second. What you said about you know the, I guess the kind of like. Well, the the secularization of various practices has been going on for a you know long time. You only have to look at you know like yoga and vipassana meditation themselves as two like examples where a lot of the you, you don't necessarily have to have a buy in of believing in uh, rebirth and uh, you know n- knowing lots of stuff about like Buddhist concepts of skandhas and. Uh, 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 ducker and things like that right. to to be able to to meditate it's not that's not a necessary uh, way in i i think it's really important what you're saying though because i um when i spoke to the social psychologist uh uh James W. Pennebaker, and he talked about his work in expressive writing and how um it reduces uh it improves well-being, but also people writing their own sort of stories down of their own traumas. Um, 50% uh, fewer trips to the doctor for the next six months. Um, they've shown that um, uh, white blood antibody counts in the bloodstream go up, um, that people heal punched biopsies quicker, having done it. But he was saying, look, like, y- you know, people can tell the same story over and over and that's actually just depression and rumination and it doesn't make them feel better and what his studies have shown is it's not so much that people are necessarily getting out a story that they've never told before but it's the effort of constructing a story Mm -hmm. the effort of finding i guess you know the way i think of it is like finding an a new way of sorting or examining your life that in some way refreshes it yeah. or defamiliarizes it in a way that you can see it as if for the first time yeah. um i think that's inherently valuable mm-hmm. and i think even if somebody doesn't have a buy into um some of the uh, more sort of i guess uh not even nebulous but supranormal aspects of it right. um you can still I, th- I think see the value in a reimagining because that is part of the business of art yeah yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, yeah, no, for sure. And I think it's even it's it's yeah. Uh, to 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 defend uh, uh, astrology, I'm not sure if it's necessary to do, but like you know, I, I'm not talking about you know, I mean maybe pay attention to uh, you know your sun sign in the horoscope section of a um, of a magazine, and then either like ignore it and do the opposite, or or or, or, or you know try and incorporate that into your um your your practices and your uh, habits but i'm talking about like you know a, a professional astrologer will you know set your whole chart and that's that's a wealth of not just like one of 12 personality types but like how do seven or nine or however many you know the the if it, they're a modern astrologer how do how do these many planets in these 12 signs and crucially their aspects to each other say some incredibly complex and and through the the 12 houses of the different facets of your life these these create an incredible amount of data and even if you're just like picking and choosing bits and pieces of the 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 rich tapestry of like interconnected nodes of meaning uh to 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 glom onto that's as you say that's a refreshing of 
you know, seeing the same thing with new eyes, which itself is, you know, one of those primary motivators for creativity. I'm going to ask possibly a dumb question, but if people want to, wanted to find an astrologer to do that for them or possibly, you know, to, you know, to do for a, a, a friend or something like yeah, yeah. that who writes, um, how can they go? How does one go about finding an astrologer <laughs> oh i mean there's there's a wealth of them um on the internet um they're, they're the uh, astrologers are some of the actually some of the most gregarious um occult practitioners um I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of them have their their unions and their um uh, organizations uh, and clubs and it's it's arguably also one of the most like um professional uh, because you know big magazines pay big money for astrologers to to do you know uh, occasionally very sensitive and um and, and and nuanced uh kinds of readings i mean certainly i could i could recommend some friends and colleagues of mine um uh, i mean yeah go ahead if you would like to absolutely. I don't, I mean, uh, my, my good friend sasha ravich uh is a uh a trainee psychoanalyst and um uh, a, a witch of many sorts but also a very keen astrologer uh and she also works heavily in, in fields of uh she's primarily interested in uh both creativity and and trauma uh, as well and and hence the the psychoanalysis um and uh and 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 schopenhauer and and kierkegaard and she's you know has a philosopher by training as well um so i, I can definitely pass on details she uh, she does uh, you know detailed natal uh, work for sure uh and i think she does some horary work as well fantastic so i i'll put um if you after we've chatted you send me send me a link i'll put a link in the show notes to yep. this as well if anyone wants to go and um check out her her work that's uh that so can i does i just because i want to like just are you suggesting that you could potentially speak to a that the one thing a, a, a astrologer might do is suggest auspicious auspicious times to come up with ideas yes so there's the, uh there's a variety more inspiring times yeah yeah definitely definitely so there are, um and, and and i do this in my practice as well in that um uh, while geomancy doesn't rely on where the stars are, we don't use telescopes or tables of ephemerides. Uh, we we do still work off the basis of this is this is this planetary influence, right? Um, the the two geomantic figures of uh, Jupiter are gain, acquisitio, expansion, uh, which is one of the things Jupiter is very known for, and the other is Laetitia, joy, right? The 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 idea of being jovial, right? Uh, and so these are the two. Uh, hands of Jupiter in the world, and so being associated with a uh, Thursday, uh, as, as as Jupiter is, uh, there are, I'd definitely recommend. I, I, you know, it's part of my practice uh, in terms of the remediation we talked about uh, of, of helping someone through a situation to identify particular points uh, that are useful for them, and that can be from from the divination of, of the 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 sortilege of the the, the throwing of lots or, or, or dice or, or sticks or things like that like I do or it could be an astrologer uh, isolating um, the planets that rule um, your own processes so if it's communication it could there's a variety of ways they could do it they could look to where Mercury is in your chart as Mercury rules like communication and things like that but that's a that's a very simple uh, you know um, that's only one approach there are a variety of astrological uh, method, methods of generate of, of 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 realizing what is the most important planet in your chart. What's the most well dignified planet in your chart, which might not be the ruler of the sign that the sun was in when you were born, 
Uh, it might be uh, something very different. And there are different names for this. Uh, the main one is like the Almutant. And that would give you one planet that you could um, work with to help you uh, to with your writing. So that could, you know, each of the planets, the seven planets rules a day of the, the week. Um, there's a, a system of assigning the hours of a day to particular planets as well. That, again, has nothing technically to do with the with the stars. Um, but is about the, the Chaldean sequence of the, the furthest and heaviest planets uh, out um, Saturn in the traditional system, all the way to the Alacritus uh, and Caleritus moon um, that's very, very close. And so the hours of the day are also given a particular weight uh, to a planet. So plenty of grimoric workings of ritual magic were done, you know, in the day and hour of Mercury, for instance. And thus you could you could ritualize time that you would do something to sit down that sounds awesome yeah i'll tell you what that because it's got you it's going to mean that you're doing things in a way that you haven't done before and i know just from this is this is a super weird flex right but <laughs> <laughs> like i know from my experience of mental illness and i thought actually i'd tell you why i would tell you why it's come to mind because talking to helen mcdonald who wrote h's for hawk when she came round we talked about like when you're in heavily in grief or when you're suffering from sort of mental illness like depression um, because you maybe sleep odd hours yeah. uh because you are knocked out of the normal rituals of everyday life yeah. you start noticing things about the world um your relationship to the world and reality becomes very very different yes and your perception of things and you know she went through a whole period of feeling sort of like she was going back to some primal self mm. but um that that feeling of being disconnected with the sort of standard revolutions of the world and yeah. nine to five um some anything that kind of knocks you out of that habitual thinking and i mean we're getting into if i'm not careful i'm going to be sort of uh presenting myself as a kind of uh neo gurdjieff here <laughs> and sort of like uh, coming out with my kind of like but but you know that break the pattern know, break the pattern yeah but, but exactly yeah but that is but that is you know i mean i know like a lot of the time it does feel a little bit like he was just getting rich people to like build him marble baths but <laughs> but there but there but i think there is something in that thing of disrupting standard patterns yeah. i think it does naturally produce growth and insight definitely definitely i i, I think so you you know there's there's plenty of uh, you know those those diagrams that say magic is what happens outside of the the comfort zone um that is that the you know the 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 you know that wisdom is won won by the hard coin of uh, of of difficulty of, um, of of throwing ourselves out of grooves allows us to be better at um, knowing what to do when we don't know what to do right these are these are these are survival tactics these are um, this is how to train um, a vital wit of uh, conduct right. Uh, uh, being wow, what a term! I love that. The vital wit of conduct, right? The the, the the trainings we do that we put us, and this this is something that you get in in a variety of of rituals that are done that like aren't fun necessarily, that might be arduous or, or um, uh, difficult or or put us in make you know that that, that make us uh, uh, you know emotionally vulnerable, right? Is that we are learning how to be in that state and not freeze it's 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 there's a there's a there's a martial arts of like 
uh, of being able to to not freeze up when we're in a in a tight spot or when we when we don't know what to do, right? Uh, and being able to to think on our feet and not have to rely on um, you know following orders of a of a regimented structure or a, or a pattern or a habit. I, so okay, so. Al, this is just I'm I love this so much because there is not a writer alive who has who has tried to write a novel who hasn't at some point during it. And I've spoken to actually authors and it comes the the wall, I guess, comes at different points, but that point where they feel completely at sea. You know, I'm reaching for metaphors here, but right, just right. adrift, um, without map or compass, or just when that, when it goes from being a kind of like, you know, walking along the road and the postman pat music is playing and the birds are singing <laughs> and they're waving at the villages, to just a kind of ord- ordeal. Yeah. Um, even if it's a, you know, obviously a, an emotional ordeal. I wonder, this might be too big a question or it might be too situational, but I wonder if you could, before we get into the final bit I'd like to talk about, which is just like ritualising the writing process, can you talk a little bit about what do you, what does one do or maybe what do you do when you find yourself in those, in those moments in, you know, that time in the desert, you know, in in that kind of period of lostness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have, I have about mm, three, four recourses. Okay, so uh, you know, I I divine for myself, um, not as often as I probably should. You know, um, uh, the what is it? The the cobbler's um, kids go on shod. Um, I do because I'm doing it for for clients and things. Um, there's a yeah, there's a, like, and I do a lot of uh, readings for clients who are in exactly that position as well. So. Uh, I would. I imagine that's like a, a very, very, you know, common place that people come yeah. is, is is just being in that kind of when the car has run out of juice and right. there's no no civilization for miles around. Yeah, yeah. And one of the one of the things about studying, say, uh, humoral theory, uh, which is the you know was the dominant medical model for a good fifteen hundred years in Europe, about uh, proper balance of the four elemental humors in the body. You know, you 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 your cholera, your, your yellow bile, your black bile, your phlegm and your blood or your sanguine humor, uh, which which directly map onto the um, the elements that are present in, in geomancy means that, you know, there are some writers where, uh, you know, they, the clients who've, who've come to me in that situation and I've been able to say um, some very concrete things about their like sleep hygiene, for instance that that's come up as a thing. Uh, there are others where they're doing everything right in terms of like living healthy and like in good relation with, uh, you know, friends and family and stuff. It's just not happening. And that's where you can start to talk about the ritualizing that we'll get onto. For me personally, uh, I, I raise myself if that's not clear. And a lot of the time it's not because if you're banging your head against the blind spot, um, craning to look at the blind spot isn't, you know, isn't helpful. And that's where uh, asking other diviners to 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 chip in is helpful i'm lucky that i have i have many different kinds of of networks of support uh on the one hand i'm involved in a couple of um religious and magical traditions where divination plays a a central role so uh, i can go to actual elders in that tradition and you know ask them to 
um, to divine on on this on this problem I'm having, and for them to be able to to offer a variety of kinds of uh, solutions that 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 are all ritualized, but but understanding that ritualized can mean you know um, avoid these kinds of foods for a week and see how that like affects your writing, all the way to you know carve this candle with this spirit sigil uh, and ask for assistance on this thing. The other um, network of support I have is um, uh, being based in New York. Is 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 I have a uh, 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 a kind of um, club night with a bunch of friends who were also diviners that we uh, uh, inventively just called Diviners Club, where we, we pitch up to a different bar in Brooklyn or Manhattan every week and read for each other on middle range problems. Not anything so trivial that it's not bother, it's not worth, um, you know, uh, divining on and not so massive that we wouldn't, you know, want to take it to a professional, but like mid range stuff like that you know, that guy at work is still being kind of a hassle or like I'm trying to decide between this thing that isn't uh, an immediate decision, but it's something I want some perspective on. And we do a panel approach. So there's normally like anywhere between, you know, five and, 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 and gosh, like 12 of us. And we'll pick by, by dice roll, of course, we'll pick two people hmm. uh, to divine on the situation and then the third person to uh, to suggest some like remediation strategies and so what's also fascinating there is it's not just the the flip of one coin or, or one set of cards. It's other people picking up the story and like uh, and, and, and uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? And like um, uh, 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 like uh, 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 making it how, uh, you know, contextualizing it further. And like uh, it becomes a collaborative uh, kind of storytelling about what's helpful strategies. Yeah, you the, sound the, like a kind of mystic forward. improv group. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You kind of like yeah, you're kind of like yes anding and um, but a bit like in kind of Monkey Island where you're passing the grog from like one cup to another one before it melts. Yeah, you're kind of like handing this torch and 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 slowly illuminating different parts of uh, the the same story or giving different angles or yeah. you know like you were talking about thesis and antithesis i guess sometimes that's the kind of you get to all bring your different personalities or takes to exactly, the yeah. same thing and it's also an opportunity as it's also a lab for uh people to to try out um different systems of divination as well and we have a you know there's a whole range of um uh of of, of friends and colleagues who uh you know are trying out like oh i'm going to give like reading playing cards a go or uh my friend cooper who's a very gifted poet uh cooper wilhelm well worth um checking his stuff out uh often does um bibliomancy he was doing it with das capital for a while but he's uh, he's he's nice he's gone back to traditional brass tacks and now has like four or five different um versions of the of, of old bibles uh that he goes through and um and pulls out uh, a rel- you know a passage uh, quote unquote at random and then we we interpret that passage um, but yeah, I, I you know wow. have friends who who have like NLP and hypnosis training who've done mild inductions uh, like in bar in in a corner of a bar and uh, you know done that classic improv game of like you know you're handed a box you open the box what's in the box um, there's there's a kitten okay that's one of the answers then and then we we interpret the answers that they're they're generating themselves uh, so very non computational technique uh, that would be. Uh, but also, you know, plenty of, of geomancing and tarot. and. But it, uh, it also strikes so. me that, and I don't want to open uh, a, a big box of kittens, but it also strikes me that when you talk about the computational techniques, that the, the two, that these things, and I know you're aware of this, are not 
uh, there's not a, stri- a strict dichotomy because you get some answers which you must then interpret. Yeah. And so the intuitive side comes in the com- computational side, right? You yeah. get get some answers which you're then going, okay. And, and so I, I, I guess that, you know, the, it's not an either or, right? No, exactly. Exactly. No, those are, those are strategies for anthropologists. Uh, to produce etic models of what divination in different places looks like it's it's usually not on the ground and there's a there's a, an idea of um uh, within within like the, the occult philosophy of, of alchemy that you are by by learning how one physical process works how one set of like chemicals or minerals or whatever interact with each other you have just learned a a way that nature works and that is a model that you can then apply quote unquote metaphorically to any other model that you are constantly meta modeling right that in learning about anything you are finding way you you are you have more analogies now to being able to say you know uh to being able to apply that to something else and so you know that that's that's where practicing interpretation and being able to take data and turn it into meaning is useful my 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 my, uh my good friend uh Nick Civitello is a is a very gifted astrologer, but he also does a thing sometimes at Diviners Club where he'll divine by the cards in his wallet. And so you'll just pick a couple of those and he'll be like, oh, I picked up this business card from this guy. He was kind of like this. He was like, you know, gave a lot of mouth, but like, it, you know, at this meeting. But and he'll he'll have a story from his life about it. And then he'll apply that story to their situation, to the situation of whoever's asking the question. So you're practicing your interpretive muscles. Right. Which is which is also practicing your remediating muscles uh, if, you, if you're wow. moving towards trying to solve a particular question, which is more which is less often, uh, you know, will this thing happen or not? And a lot more about what do I need to bear in mind if I want this to happen? Wow. That's I mean, like, of, you know, often when I'm chatting to people on this podcast, I have a few moments of like like little mini breakthroughs or things where i sort of slightly like slightly leave my body with oh my gosh like (laughs) i I, where i where i slightly like i I slightly am back from the conversation as my mind explodes (laughs) but that idea that in solving one problem or in discovering one thing you are actually giving yourself a kind of new set of spectacles or a new sort of chopping knife or whatever yeah. to and like you say like like you said with the kind of old old bestiaries having to describe and anyone who writes fantasy has had this problem having to describe an animal, animal only in terms of animals you already know right well every time you meet and a new animal you have a new animal by which you can by analogy de- describe other animals right yes. like yes. that's and, and 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 suddenly you're ability the way the different ways you can sort the world mm-hmm. have you know you're giving yourself new stories and with each of those your sort of power or your freedom i guess would be a sort of like maybe more neutral term grows yeah 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 totally yeah uh yeah uh, ne- uh, you know every day's a, a teaching day <laughs> can we talk about to finish off like talk a bit about how m- people might sort of start applying or using or incorporating uh ritual um in their in their writing to um increase inspiration to uh, just just because it feels so often when i write that i'm completely on my own yeah um that i am winging it in 
a way that doesn't feel like freedom. I mean, it was really good fun talking to the author Chris McCrudden and him saying that he thinks that maybe like one of the great appeals of of being a, an author and one of the reasons it sort of ops polls so highly in jobs that people want is that there's so much monitoring at work nowadays that people are just um attracted by the idea of being left alone <laughs> and not, and I think I think he's got you know he's got a real point yeah. but that can also feel not wanting to sound like a whinger, but it it can feel very lonely, and it can I I often feel like a bit of a fraud and a bit. So can you know the idea of having some of these ways in is very attractive to me. I wonder if you could talk about you know ways that we someone might incorporate ritual or things like uh, or, or or some kind of magic into their writing practice. For sure, yeah. Um, I think the first thing to bear in mind is that when you're looking for inspiration, um, we have to have a very relaxed sense of what counts as useful information that we're getting, right? We have to kind of pretty much, uh, in a way, like throw out any notion that like the answer will come fully formed, right? What we, what we have is, is, is almost, we give, we need to think about being assigned our own runes or our own strange markings or our own, you know, um, piece of music that might come to us that we then um that we then assess so for a start thinking less about you know if i do this thing then suddenly the the whole novel will just plop into my mind and i'll I'll just have to transcribe it from from this supreme inspiration occasionally that does happen um but but gathering these things and 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 getting your your ritual chops is a skill it's a it's a performance to yourself and to the cosmos right and uh, so treating it as such and treating your ability to do it as not contingent on am I a am I a good ritualist or not, but like how can I train and practice to be a better ritualist, right? Uh, and you, that 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 lovely um, you know Adventure Time quote about like sucking at something is the first step to being really good at something. Right? Hmm. So so for a start, I think the most important thing is like whatever the ritual that you end up doing is allow it to look like gibberish at first that's that's a that's that's kind of i think an important step but the things i come down to are doing things at particular times uh so um gosh yeah the depending on what kind of thing you're writing finding the planetary ruler of that thing right uh so if you're writing a a romance uh maybe doing it on a venus day which is venus rules friday uh freya's day and uh, maybe even doing it in the hour of Venus on that day, which would be at sunrise, um, then eight hours later. Um, and, and planetary hours actually work by dividing up the period of daylight. So it, they work from, from sunrise to sunset. Uh, I could go into the maths of it, but uh, as most people have smartphones now, there's a variety of, um, of apps, free apps uh, called, like, that will do planetary hours for you and that, wow. that alarms for and they will tell you when that hour is rolling around. And some of the really good ones, uh, one called Hours, for instance, which I think is like a dollar or three maybe, um, will also tell you what that hour of the day is good for. Like it'll it'll, it'll list. This is this is this is classic. Like grimoires of ritual magic were were full of these kinds of things. One particular Byzantine, probably 14th, maybe 15th century grimoire, the the Higromantia or the Magical Treatise of Solomon, actually has. Uh, lists of what each hour of each day is good for based off like it's a uh it's a let's say it's a venus day it's friday and it's a mercury hour in that venus day an hour ruled by mercury uh, in the sequence of the seven going round in that that 
that planetary order I talked about, the Chaldean sequence, occasionally called the Ptolemaic sequence as well. So uh, Mercury hour on our Venus day might be really good for writing love letters, right? So it's about that correspondence thing of Mercury, but it's the general theme of love uh, under Venus. And so you can, you can, you can um, tailor what time you do something. So you have a time to do something, which will be uh, in, in, uh, during midsummer, that will be a lot longer than a, than, than a 60 minute hour because there's more daylight. At midwinter, it will be a lot less because there's a lot less daylight. But you have a notion of a time that you could do something at. You have a, a planetary uh, ruler. And then, um, this, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, 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 of planetary magic as a thing that has been done for a while. Like people have been working with the, the seven planets in a variety of formats for a while. You could go, you know, arch. Hellenistic reconstructionist and and pray literally to you know Aphrodite. Uh, you could you know um, go you know very like New Agey and look at the, the 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 crystals that are associated with uh, with that planet. Not that crystals are just New Agey; they're also very old Agey. Uh, some of the earliest uh, Grimoric tech about uh, making uh, star talismans boils down to particular stone, particular herb, particular time. Uh, but there's, you know, there's a range of ways, you know, uh, there are a bunch of different ways that the chakra systems, and there are many, many of those, um, have been assigned to the seven planets and areas of the body. So there's like meditative practices you could do. Um, and the idea is that you're ritualizing, attempting to bring that planet's influence into your life, uh, in some way. So, Classically, you know, you would find out the the color associated with the with the planet, the um, the number associated with the planet. So if we're doing this, we're, we're continuing this analogy of like you're trying to write this romance novel, um, you might well pick uh, a Mercury hour and a Venus day, uh, or let's say you picked a, a Venus hour and a Venus day to keep it simple. Uh, Venus's typical ritual colors are green. Typical numbers are seven. Typical. Um, uh, incenses or scents are rose, uh, occasionally lily as well. So, I mean, that sounds really that sounds like a lovely way to write romance. By the way, it, you're immediately making the act of sitting down to write sound really attractive to me. Yeah, you're like, okay, so sunrise. It's going to be sunrise on a Friday, mm-hmm. and you're going to light some rose incense. Mm-hmm and sit down there might be something kind of like green around you maybe you'll be surrounded by something green um i just like that i'm not sure how i would incorporate the number seven but um that sounds it immediately it immediately makes the idea of sitting down to write it takes a lot of the uh trepidation out of it it feels exciting it feels special Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't take away it actually gives it a kind of not profundity but like semi-sacredness to it It feels special but it doesn't feel intimidating yeah yeah exactly and you are you are opening up and you're asking for uh inspiration you know a lot of the orphic hymns which are obviously based in far older greek stuff but are translated in the 19th century by thomas taylor end with you know grant your supplicant there's 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 usually a um i mean those those are written in very close um uh abab um, but there are spaces in many of these incantations in other, say, astro- planetary magic manuals where, you know, there's, uh, there's plenty of like praise that's heaped on the idea of this planet and the things it rules and whether it's a spirit or a god or a concept. Like there are, there are, there's, there's room for many uh, cosmologies within working with the planets. Uh, but there's also usually a space of like, and help me with this specific petition. 
where you can start to describe the the problem, which itself is really useful, right? When you're starting to, when you just have someone else to 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 talk to. So it's 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 you know it's talking to a specific aspect of uh, of, of of the cosmos or of your own deep mind or your intuition or god or gods or spirits i think in in programming they call it there's a the term rubber ducking mm. right where when you talk you just describe what you're trying to do with the code to a rubber duck yes. on your desk yes and the, you know part of the act of having to formulate a prop well here we're going back to this again being able to do the effort after articulating what your problem is mm -hmm. is in itself a huge i think any, everyone can agree a hugely valuable um enterprise yeah. right yeah yeah and so you've built this whole you know uh sensory labyrinth theater for yourself of like you know setting the altar at your at your writing desk maybe you're having an actual you know coffee table or something with all this stuff going on and like asking for inspiration and and then trying to you know reflect on the way you feel about the thing, even if that's, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, tension or, or skepticism at first, you know, and working through that and, you know, placing yourself in being 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 infused with the virtues, uh, which is the, the, the technical occult philosophical term, not the not the idea of the moral virtue of something, but the just the, the, the power of those all those Venusian things, all those things that contain this this Venusian um, current or, or, or energy or, or sympathia uh, into you, and and then you're hopefully deploying that uh, to to um, to bring more Venus into the world, right? So you're cultivating that that fire and then setting fire to your, you know, to your to your work in a in a in a good way. That I guess setting fire to your work is something that some authors feel in a, uh, a profoundly bad way as well sometimes <laughs> but like you're transmitting something right it's coming through you and that's the other idea of like training to be the hollow bone right it that it that um uh gosh was it keith johnston's impro book where he talked about um yeah i've got it up on the shelf here actually yeah, yeah. that like that feeling like you have to be original can be a real block to being creative uh because you're already editing yourself before it's come out and so this idea of like kind of kicking it up the up the chain right so to speak and being like all right spirit of venus what would you write if you were going to write this next chapter and then it there's a there's a critical distance there from your own you know uh, neuroses and doubts and imposter syndrome well his his chapter on you know his stuff he writes about mask work is yes. just revelatory right right this this idea that you know the first thing you do when you put on a mask is 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 is, is look around what's going on right <laughs> there you know that's that doesn't tell you that theory you know on a purely rational level that doesn't tell you anything yeah. right you you the mask is on your face like you you can't but it, but something about donning or assuming this other mode yeah. changes how you see the world yeah and if you have you know if you if you if you're happy to play in uh, animists headspaces that makes total sense you know uh my, my very good friend jesse who's um also a, a proponent of a lot of, of gurdjieff stuff that i do uh our podcast uh, radio free golgotha with uh he he's done he was talking about a lot of he's a uh trained in theater and he talks explicitly about like mask work where they wouldn't where you wouldn't get to see the mask but you would have to act what you think the the what the character of the mask was and how the either a character of a mask started to develop 
uh, despite no one else being able to, to you not being able to see your mask but every time you put it on you'd you'd start to build this character out so there's a sense of building character but also the sense that the the spirit of the mask wants to to act and dance and um uh gibber in particular ways um yeah that's awesome i i love i, I just love all of this out i i think it's such a rich i know you know we buy you know by necessity um you know we've had to skirt across so many things but i love this idea of i i i just think that you're what you're talking about gives writers so many tools to work with yeah. and some traditions that maybe you know and again it can be to do with this kind of like rational mind it can be to do with this kind of like adult mind or whatever you sort of see the etiology of um this self-censoring impulse mm. um but to you know that you to get out of that and to be open yourself up to the possibility of ideas yeah it, it's that it's that you have to at some level um do the scary thing of handing the wheel over to you know and yeah. saying you drive for a bit yeah might not end up what i you know i perforce cannot end up where i would normally choose to right but um and that's and that's where you're the editor again that's something Burroughs talked a lot about with the curve technique yes it's 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 randomizing things but that's that's clashing things together and seeing what you think works like there's the there's the experiment and then there's the there's the collecting of what the experiment produces and honing that you're still making choices right at the end of it and that's the that's the coming back to yourself part of it you know that once you've received the message you put the phone down um unless you're writing you know literally um you know you if you if your your experimental mode is like i'm literally just going to do the aleatorics of pulling you know paragraphs and things out uh, most of the time as i say you're 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 you know you're trying to for want of a uh, a less loaded term channel something but then you also get to edit that and decide how much of that you actually want to include and, and make it your own. It's not, again, it's not about abnegating responsibility, but it's about um, taking a step back sometimes and getting a, a, a wider picture. And also that the, all of these things are often bespoke. There's, there's, um, there's, uh, and, and so handing, you know, asking for help is not the same as, um, as giving up, right? Uh, or, or, or asking someone else to, to do the work for you. And that's where, there are general, you know, ritualizing things that I think can help like all writers. And then there's specific stuff where it, you know, it might behoove you to make friends with a diviner or, or reach out to a, uh, to a professional and ask them and, 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 and then be able to pull out, you know, all sorts of strategies around, you know, timing around, you know, what, uh, what kinds of, um, things to have in the room, uh, what kind of incenses, what kind of colors what kind of clothes to wear when you're doing it uh you know particular gestural stuff that you might do uh you know particular choreography of like doing a particular kind of like movement with your body like for again kinds of learning right uh what what you might want to speak out loud what you might want to speak silently charms that you could carry around with you for different things like there's a wealth of um of solutions but 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 the the strength of them often comes from their um their specificity and their bespoke uh tailoring to your particular situation and and time and place uh which is I, I think analogous to the difference between you know the the 12 personality types of of sun sign astrology and like the wealth of things when you're you're dealing with all 
seven or however many planets doing their their aspecting in your chart you can pull the same thing out of a you know a geomantic shield and the ability to to um to also look at underlying factors that might not be immediately obvious that can pull out like well you know you might want to think about this thing that's distracting you from doing good writing as well and then you can talk about that kind of stuff so by zoning in on one particular facet of a situation you're also uh building tools to deal with all of the facets that uh, are connected to that facet either explicitly or implicitly that is absolutely fantastic thank you so much Al. if people want to uh find uh you and your work online where's the best like i said we'll put links sure, yeah. in the show uh, notes, but where's the best place for them to go my website which is uh com because that's my name and it wasn't taken um i you can find uh my bloggery on there there's a list of publications there's um uh class bundles which are like downloadable modules it's usually like a two or three hour illustrated lecture recording uh, like video and uh a book and and the the primary sources that i introduce in that thing and then like a list of recommended reading um and so i have modules on uh planetary magic on geomancy on necromancy um on a, on a couple on image magic a couple of things like that uh and uh you can also book um consults uh, with me through that which can either be us sitting down and having a chat about some ideas or you know um some some pointers towards uh you know you might want to look into this 16th century occult philosopher if you're looking at ideas for you know for fantasy writers like generating their their, their magic system and things like that and also just straight up uh, divination can be booked there as well awesome thank you so much yeah no i feel like i'm going to be listening back to this and um uh, it's going to be resonating with me for a for a, for a good long while but thank you so so oh, much i'm so glad we did this that's very kind of you tim thank you no it's 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 always a a, a delight to chat to you and everybody listening Thank you very much for listening and I hope you have a fabulous writing week.